This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning. This is Marianne Ritchie, and I am your radio doctor. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that's familiar to so many, acid reflux or heartburn. Now, friends, you may remember that our very first show was last year in February, which is Heart Month. Our guest, noted cardiologist, Dr. Howard Weitz, and I asked, Doctor, I have a feeling in my chest. Is it heartburn or a heart attack? Well, today, I'm thrilled to welcome a physician with a national reputation in our field of gastroenterology to talk about acid reflux, the problems it can cause, including Barrett's esophagus and even cancer of the esophagus. Dr. Anthony Infantilino, a professor of medicine at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, recently bestowed the wonderful honor of being an endowed professor, the William Rohrer Professor of Medicine. Cheers to you, Tony. And he holds so many leadership positions at Jefferson, including Associate Chief of Division of GI and Hepatology and the Director of the Barrett's Esophagus Treatment Center. He's highly respected in the broader Philadelphia region and is recognized across the country for his work, especially with Barrett's esophagus. You'd need a U-Haul to carry the many prestigious awards for his research, extensive list of publications, lectures, countless times he's been a top doc in Philly Magazine, South Jersey Magazine, and other community awards, a respected great teacher and mentor, and he's earned the respect and love of his colleagues. He's a doctor's doctor and happens to be an exceptionally nice person. So I present the titan of intestines, the sultan of stomachs, the prince of polyps, the king of colonoscopy, the great bambino, Dr. Anthony Infantilino. Welcome, Tony. Great to have you today. Uh, uh, Marion, that was a very kind introduction. I appreciate uh, everything. uh, (laughs) It's been a pleasure working with you, and I'm excited to be on this program today. It's really a privilege and an honor to uh, uh, send some information out to all the listeners today about reflux and Barrett's esophagus. Well, we do consider you the Babe Ruth, Tony, and Infantilino, <laughs> Infant Babe. It all works, so I had to borrow some of those titles from the Babe. That was great. So let's start, Tony. Reflux. Some say GERD. What does G-E-R-D stand for? 
Well, you'll see this commonly in the literature, or if you're on the infamous Dr. Google, uh, GERD will come up. So that's gastroesophageal reflux disease. So what that really means is that stomach contents, including acid and bile that we all have in our stomach and sometimes food and its contents, will periodically come up into the esophagus. Now, we all have some acid reflux, but when it comes up too frequently and is causing symptoms persistently, this is when we are saying that patients have GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. And what are the most common causes? So uh, there is sort of a muscular door at the end of the food tube called the lower esophageal sphincter. And for some reason, this little sphincter malfunctions or becomes widened or lacks. And then normal contents that God put in our stomach, acid and bile, and again, sometimes food, can come up too frequently into the esophagus, leading to the classic symptom of heartburn or regurgitation. People can. And I, I always say to my own patients that to remember the enes, nicotine, caffeine, xanthine, if you smoke cigarettes, if you drink too much caffeine, whether it's Coke or coffee or tea, and fatty food and alcohol. And sometimes that's overly simplified, but I think that helps people a little bit with ways that they can modify their lifestyle. What are some of the atypical symptoms? I think that's what confuses people. Yeah, you're, you're right, Mary. And those are all the classic things that we teach medical students about to, to, to listen to when they speak to their patients and the young doctors. But a lot of people will present what, what we call extra esophageal or stuff outside the esophagus that can be symptoms of reflux. Uh, I get referrals from dentists. They say that the people's uh, uh, there's dental erosions going on, their teeth are breaking down. We get referrals because people have raspy voice or laryngitis. Uh, we have people who have worsening uh, of uh, asthma uh, type uh, symptoms. Uh, there could be uh, a, you know, regurgitation of food and um, chest pain that mimics a heart attack, like you said when you spoke to Dr. White last year, that drives people to an emergency room because they really think they're having a heart attack because this chest pain is very difficult to distinguish cardiac from non-cardiac chest pain. So anybody with chest discomfort, we encourage them not to try and discern between those two, but uh, make sure they head to their local ER, speak to their doctors immediately. Exactly. Always go for the life-threatening issue first because, uh, and and you and I see patients that have chest pain and often will say, if you haven't told your primary care doctor about this and you haven't had a cardiogram or stress test or whatever it would need to distinguish, we don't want to jump to endoscopy till we make sure that it's not your heart. And the other thing that we often do, Tony, is we always ask our patients if they snore because sleep apnea, which we've done a whole show on that, but sleep apnea can provoke reflux when you stop breathing acutely. It, you bear down, it can promote reflux. And then on the other hand, as you already said, reflux, if enough fluid comes up into your throat, it can make you stop breathing. So you would say you often go into that question too, don't you? Yeah, sure. Uh, We ask people about nocturnal symptoms, stuff that happens during the night. People wake up with a mouthful of food, coughing, choking. And in addition, people will have sleepless nights, especially if they eat late at night and they go to sleep and they're having this reflux and then people are tired throughout the day. So acid reflux can disturb sleep, be associated with 
sleep apnea. There's no uh, question about that. So these are important questions to ask people about their nighttime symptoms. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So if you were to start with the primary care doctor who says, what can we do with your lifestyle modifications? What would we aim to do first? Well, first and foremost, I think it's really important uh, to tell your primary care doctor because I think a lot of people don't think heartburns are problems. So it's really important to just get it out there and talk to your doctor about it. Make sure you don't forget, make a little checklist of things you want to talk to your doctor about. And then if you have this classic reflux type symptoms, as we discussed, look at your diet. Oftentimes, you know, people are on the fast food uh, chain of eating uh, hamburgers, hot dogs, uh, going through drive throughs and they're not really eating healthy. And if you're obese, we clearly need you to lose weight. Weight loss is really important. Uh, stopping smoking, limiting alcohol, as you already mentioned, eating smaller meals. More often, do not eat for two or three hours before bed unless you can hate, uh, help it or at least stay up and watch some late-night late TV if you have to do that. Avoid peppermint caffeine and things like that sometimes you'll have to put a wedge uh, in your bed or raise up the whole back of the bed on blocks that seems to help people uh, by sleeping uh, semi-upright your your spouse may end up at the bottom of the bed which they're not too happy about but uh, cl clearly uh, sometimes all these lifestyle modifications can assist with the symptoms of reflux and you bring up a very important point. You want to tilt your whole bed, either with a wedge under the mattress or blocks under the legs at the top, because if you sleep on extra pillows, you may bend your neck or even your body in half, which can aggravate reflux. So we want to tilt the whole megilla. And we have a minute or so to start talking about treatment. Where do you go with that, Tony? Well, I think uh, you could certainly start with the lifestyle modification in your diet. If you're and you lose weight and your symptoms are dramatically improved, I think you've done everything you can from that point. But a lot of people, even if they change their diet and lose weight, they're still going to have reflux. We have plenty of skinny people that have reflux, and plenty of people that are mid, moderately overweight who have reflux, and then there are obese people that have or do not have reflux. The first-line therapy that's been around for a long time are the histamine blockers, the Zantax and Pepsids of the world. Now, Zantax off the market, but famotidine or Pepsid is what we call a histamine blocker, which can be taken as needed. There's old-fashioned Tums and Maalox and antacids, which have been around a very long time, since the 1940s when Maalox was invented. And then finally, the, the next group of drugs for people who have more significant reflux more than a couple of times a week are drugs called PPIs or proton pump inhibitors. These are very effective at decreasing acid production and relieving people of their symptoms. The doctor who's speaking to you right now has acid reflux, and I take omeprazole, which is generic uh, Prilosec, which has been around on the market since 1989. Well, let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Infantilino from Jefferson and talk about reflux. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Tony Infantilino from Jefferson. Tony, we were talking about treatments and Sometimes you'll hear on television or some doctors will say, well, we'll try an H2 blocker or a PPI. And you explained it very well. Histamine is one of the stimulants for acid. So if we give you 
an antihistamine. Histamine one makes your eyes teary, your nose sniffly. So an antihistamine for a cold is different from histamine two, which stimulates acid. So an H2 blocker helps with lowering your acid by maybe 75%. The stronger medicines turn the acid production off 100%. So we call them the pump inhibitors. And we tell our patients take at least 30 to 60 minutes before breakfast. And if they've been on it for a while, why is it important to taper it gradually? Yeah, so uh, whenever you decrease acid production, you're going to feel a lot better. And if you abruptly stop these medications, naturally the acid production is going to rev up really quickly and you're going to have what we call rebound acid secretion and you're going to notice this you know, flame in your esophagus. But if you do exactly as you uh, mentioned, slowly taper off the medicine, then your body will get used to slow buildup of acid once again to a reasonable level level so it's really important never to abruptly stop this medication or many other medications no matter what it is typically your family doctor or other specialists will recommend coming slowly off medications and i agree with that plan in particular as it comes uh, to stomach acid medications well and you make a, such a good point don't be dr google on different levels don't treat yourself and if you do have heartburn don't think that going to the drugstore, that's just getting a Band-Aid. If you're away, even Imodium on the package, the side of the package will say, don't continue to take this without a doctor's advice. Don't go for years taking over-the-counter omeprazole or these medications because you're going to tell us that sometimes you need ongoing therapy because you have continued symptoms. And if we ignore chronic acid reflux, there are some really dangerous outcomes that you'll tell us about. Yes, that's really important, Marianne. When these things went over the counter, I really wasn't thrilled about it because I was concerned, uh, as does occur, that people will just take these more potent acid-suppressing medications and mask the symptoms uh, of reflux. They'll say, oh, my reflux uh, cured now. I don't have to tell my doctor about it. I'll just take these things indefinitely. In fact, we really wanted to get labeling on these uh, drugs to say, listen, uh, you know, don't take these long-term because we want you to see a doctor. If this has been going on for a number of years, even though you're feeling better, you should seek medical attention from an expert in this area to be sure there's no complications of your reflux, which is something I think you're going to take us into next that we could discuss. Yes. Before I go on, let's yeah. talk about this, the possible side effects. One good internet story throws people in uh, such a curveball. Let's quickly go through the things that are not likely to result from taking the stronger pump inhibitors like dementia. Yeah, it's very important, uh, Marianne. The problem is, is uh, everything could get published these days uh, with little difficulty as opposed to previous to the internet era where you had much more stringent control over what got published. And we rate these published studies just like you get grades in school, A, B, C, and D. There's a, a lot of D studies which are not good getting published. And then the media, unfortunately, sometimes gets a hold of these things and they know that people are taking these medications. And even if it's a bad study, they're going to try and get people to tune in to listen. And a lot of these are not really cause and effect studies, meaning just because they say there's a possible relationship between X and Y doesn't mean that X caused Y, like dementia or anemia or kidney problems or bone thinning or low magnesiums or infections in the, in the bowel. So it's very important when you look at side effects to really 
uh, talk to your doctor about them because uh, there's many poorly designed trials that get into the literature that really can scare patients from taking these medications when they really need them for both symptom relief and for those who have complications of reflux. It's important and they even help prevent cancer. Right. And I know some of the things that have come up with our patients in recent years, will I get dementia? Well, maybe the people that were having signs of dementia already had a stroke or diabetes and it wasn't from the medication. It's like saying gray hair and, and gallstones. They're, they're not cause and effect. They're they're there at the same time. And osteoporosis, we know that there may be some decrease in calcium absorption, but the tests show no change in bone density, so they really do not increase your risk for broken bones or fractures. And same with renal disease. If a person is um, a little bit older and they already have diabetes or heart failure, liver disease, Maybe they do have kidney disease from that other illness, and it's not from the medication. So talk to your doctor before you adjust your own meds. And we always do try people on a medication for about two months and try to reduce the dose as time goes by. And the other thing that we like to mention, Tony, you were going to mention about Plavix, a blood thinner, and a Meprazole. Yeah, that's an important uh, uh, thing to discuss as well. So many people are on blood thinners these days because they've had stents put in their heart or in other arteries or they've had mini strokes and they've had blood clots especially you know COVID patients now getting uh, blood clots in their legs and uh, it's important to uh, look at these drugs and how they relate to blood thinners. A number of years ago they thought there was some relationship between omeprazole and the drug Plavix which is a clopidogrel which is another blood thinner. And it alarmed uh, all the cardiologists, it alarmed all the gastroenterologists. Uh, Marianne's uh, phone and my phone were ringing off the hook from patients. Uh, should I get off these medications? And then naturally, it was another poorly designed trial. And then when the larger, really well-designed trials were done, that did not show a relationship between omeprazole and Plavix. But unfortunately, the FDA never removed the warning. But when you look at the literature, these drugs, uh, including omeprazole, have been shown to be safe uh, for a while. We had moved everybody over to another brand of a proton pump inhibitor, Protonix or some of the other ones. But uh, the literature would suggest there really is no relationship between the two, and all that uh, controversy has died down now. Mm-hmm. So I guess our big message, Tony, is when should a patient have endoscopy and why? Well, we want to confirm the diagnosis and make sure it is cardiac. We want to see if years of acid reflux has caused damage to the lining of the esophagus, like ulcers. And sometimes we see narrowings called strictures. But let's talk about Barrett's. That has been your focus. You've done such great research about Barrett's. Maybe you could explain what Barrett's is to our audience and um, and also Tell us what would lead a person to have an endoscopy. Yeah, these are all important points. So after you've done talking to your physician, hopefully he or she, after you tell them you've been having reflux for a number of years, they're going to refer you either directly for an endoscopy or to a gastroenterologist, preferably, to have a discussion about this and why you might need an endoscopy. Endoscopy is when we make you sleepy. Uh, as an outpatient, we look inside your food tube in your stomach to see if the lining's been inflamed or damaged. And uh, this could uh, include uh, a altered lining named after a famous uh, uh, dead uh, thoracic surgeon from the um, United Kingdom who practiced and worked in the United States and did research. He noticed that in patients that the acid reflux 
although he wasn't sure what the cause was in the 1950s, caused an altered lining of the esophagus. Instead of it looking like a normal esophageal lining, it looked like an intestinal lining. And after they figured out what Dr. Barrett was onto, that this altered lining, or intestinal metaplasia it's called, is an increased risk type lining for transition to precancer and cancer. So we call that intestinal metaplasia, and in honor of Dr. Barrett, we say consistent with Barrett's esophagus. So for our listeners, when we do endoscopy, the light is so bright, um, it's as though it, it's, it's out in the open. And normally the esophagus is pale pink, smooth, and shiny. When we go into the stomach, it's called salmon colored. It's like an orangey pink. And when we think we find Barrett's, we see either little islands or little strips of this darker pink where it shouldn't be. No lumps or bumps. It's just a color change. We biopsy it, and there's this morph, a metamorphosis from still normal. We go from normal esophagus cells to normal intestinal cells. And what's our fear with that, Tony? Well, the concern is is that patients who have this altered lining are at increased risk for esophageal cancer. And it's really important, the only way to really know for sure if you have this Barrett's esophagus is to have a test like an endoscopy. We are working on non-invasive ways to, to check for this, but really the best test at the present time is to have one endoscopy in your lifetime. And if you have that, we want to see if you have it because if there's precancerous cells there, uh, Barrett's esophagus, sometimes they could be marching already towards cancer, and that's called dysplasia. And luckily, there's been special techniques developed over the last 15 years where we can reverse this precancerous condition and put your esophagus back to normal. So it's critically important that we get a look at your esophagus. You have these risk factors of chronic reflux, male sex, you're obese, you have a uh, smoker, you have a family history of first-degree relative possibly with Barrett's esophagus or esophageal cancer. Males are at increased risk over females and long-standing uh, acid reflux. So these are important things to talk to your doctor about so we can get a look at your esophagus to see if you have this precancerous problem. Yeah, and catch it before the timeline gets away from us. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Tony Infantilino. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Thanks for joining us on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Tony Infantilino. Tony, we wanted to, our, our listeners to understand when they should get endoscopy or when we should look inside um, to make sure they don't have precancer or cancer. Yeah, so we were talking about when you have routine symptoms and you're going to get scheduled for a procedure sometime in the near future. But if you have certain symptoms, alarm symptoms, we call them, you definitely should not wait. You definitely should reach out to your family doctor or go directly to a gastroenterologist. These include things like food sticking on the way down. If you're eating a sandwich or a piece of steak, chicken, and all of a sudden you're noticing things aren't going down, you shouldn't ignore that symptom. Any painful swallowing, persistent vomiting, bleeding, unexplained 
weight loss. These are all important things that you really should not delay. Any black stool, which could be a sign of bleeding from something in your stomach or your esophagus, should definitely drive you either to the emergency room or to your uh, physician as quickly as possible. So don't ignore any of these alarm symptoms. You cannot let it wait for any reason. You must seek out medical attention. And I like that you emphasized earlier any kind of esophageal or stomach cancer in a first-degree relative. First-degree for our listeners means somebody right next to you, a brother, sister, a parent, hopefully not a child, hopefully not any of them. But if you have a close relative who's had a GI cancer, that's important too. And so when people, when we talk about blood in your stool, not just fresh blood, if you see a stool that's black, it could be that your esophagus is ulcerated or maybe a cancer or stomach ulcer from daily aspirin. And by the time that blood travels through your system, it's black. So keep that in mind to our listeners. How often does Barrett's become cancerous? Well, luckily, um, most patients with this altered lining, this Barrett's esophagus, don't get cancer. But it's uh, roughly somewhere between a 1 in 200 and 1 in 400 chance per year that you could progress uh, through. And if you have this other issue with the cells in the esophagus, this dysplasia, there's low-grade funny-looking cells, low-grade dysplasia, and high-grade funny-looking cells, high-grade dysplasia. If you have either of those things, your risk for cancer is much, much higher. It could be anywhere from 1% or 2% up to 5 or 6 out of 100 chance of getting cancer within the next 3 to 5 years. So you don't want to mess around if you have any of these symptoms and these diagnoses because you're going to need to be followed over your lifetime. There's guidelines that are in place from all the societies where people who, once they get a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, need to be followed uh, periodically by their uh, gastroenterologists. Mm-hmm. Very important that these people get and checked. You, you use the word dysplasia. So we do a biopsy early on. It's just a color change. And it says, oh, they're still normal, but they look like intestinal cells. And then we bring the patient back uh, maybe a year later, take more samples to make sure we got it all, and we look for it, DYS, D-Y-S. It's this, the prefix that means not so much, <laughs> not so perfect, like dysfunctional, right? And it can be early abnormal cells, or they become more abnormal with time. And you have treatments once we find cells that are really closer to cancer or high-grade cancer, high-grade pre-cancer. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is exciting. I've spent most of my career chasing Barrett's esophagus and figuring out ways to try and fix it. And then back in 2006 uh, to 2009, uh, we and other centers around the country and the world really got involved in a trial using a technology called radio frequency ablation. It's a heat-based technique where we um, burn off this surface lining in the esophagus, the food tube, where this precancerous tissue lies. And this is specifically used in people who have this dysplasia, as Marian uh, mentioned. This uh, it's starting to march closer to cancer. And we can strip off that precancerous tissue with an outpatient procedure. It takes anywhere around two or three procedures done uh, on a three-month cycle, and we could put your esophagus back to normal with over a ninety-five percent success rate. Prior to this procedure, people who had this dysplasia people required a major surgery where they had to take most of your esophagus, your food tube out, and pull your stomach up into your neck. So now we have one of the largest series in the world, and uh, we've been able to stop a lot of this unnecessary surgery and put people's esophagus back to normal now with an outpatient procedure. It's really exciting uh, for what we've been able to do to help patients. 
It is so exciting. And that's why people shouldn't shy away. Don't treat yourselves. Put your hands in the put yourself in the hands of an experienced professional like Dr. Infantilino because we have the tools to prevent cancer. Um, years ago, Tony, we would tell people, well, if you have Barrett's, 10%, 10% of people who reflux get Barrett's, maybe close to 10% then go on to cancer. But now because we do check people, if we look again in one year and the cells haven't progressed to precancerous changes. Then we look every three years. And once you're on our assembly line, we can protect you. And if there are early changes, you can work your magic. And I think we are seeing a rise in esophageal cancer across the world, really. And I think, as you said, once the door opened and let people go and buy their own medications, they're not coming to the GI doctor. They feel better. They put the Band-Aid on. And really, we need to monitor people with endoscopy. And it's really a gift if you find out you do have Barrett's because you don't feel it, and it's a luxury to know so you can stay under the watchful eye of a GI doctor. Let's take a little break, Tony, and welcome your very grateful patient, uh, Mr. Joe Moore. Um, Joe, welcome, and um, welcome to the show. I'd like to hear about your story. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. Now, I know, Joe, yeah, you, you had reflux for many years. I remember you saying it started when you were about 18, and you would take Tums, but you did go to your doctor, and you were treated for quite a while with um, one of the stronger acid reduction meds. After all those years, Joe, what made you finally see a GI doctor and have upper GI endoscopy? I I would get the hiccups very bad every every night at dinner time for about a month I, I went through it, and then it started the twisting motion. I went back to my doctor and he sent me for endoscopy. And, and that's when they uh, found out that I had stage three esophageal cancer. Oh my goodness. And were you having any trouble swallowing at the time, Joe? Did it feel like food was having trouble getting through or liquids? No, it was just the hiccups. And, and I kept that going for about a month. And then after that, wow. then I, when I got the twisting motion in my chest, that's when I went to my family doctor and he sent me for the uh, scope. Sure. And what treatment did you ultimately have? I know Dr. Infantilina, you praised him, as, you sh as we all do, that he put a team of a surgeon together and himself and treatment. What treatment did you have? I had the uh, esophagectomy, it turned out to be, that where they... Mm. They had to take everything out and raise my stomach. Uh, and and for our listeners, that means that we've lost the part of the highway between your mouth and your stomach, and we pull the pouch or your stomach up closer to your throat. And life is not easier for you, Joe. I know your esophagus, uh, you know, brought your stomach all the way back up in your chest, and sometimes you feel fluid in your throat, and you have to sleep sitting up, you told me, that's right? That's correct, yes, or else I aspirate. I do aspirate anyway sometimes. It, it's rough mm -hmm. now, yes. But your story is incredible, and you told me that when you first uh, got the diagnosis, the doctor said, we'll do everything we can, maybe give you a year. It's 13 years later, and you're still here. And what's your message for our listeners, Joe? That uh, all those years, instead of going to the doctors, I took Tums and roll aids and put a Band-Aid over it and thought everything was fine until it turned to cancer. Then it was a little late. 
Well, I really appreciate you joining us today because a lot of people are listening and because you're brave enough to share your story and kind enough to take the time to tell it. I think you're helping a lot of people. So thank you for that, Joe. And I know Dr. Infantilino loves you. I love him. He's a lifesaver. I know. (laughs) He really, really is. Joe, thank you so much. Stay well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And we're in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Anthony Infantilino from Jefferson Gastroenterology. Tony, you are the director of the Jefferson Barrett's Esophagus Treatment Center, and if a patient is diagnosed with Barrett's, it's a good idea to go to a specialized Barrett's Center. Tell us about the up-to-date treatment that you can get at a specialized center. Well, I opened this center about 10 or 12 years ago because I thought there was a need in Philadelphia for a center like this because like many other diagnoses, it really requires special expertise. So if a patient has known Barrett's and they want to come for a second opinion, the first thing we do is send for all their outside records, review them thoroughly. We send for their outside biopsy slides, have them read by really true expert pathologists who understand Barrett's esophagus. And then we begin to put all these pieces together and put together a plan moving forward. A lot of uh, small local pathologists, although they're doing the best they can, sometimes under or overread things within the uh, esophagus or other places. We want to get an expert second opinion. So it's really important that patients uh, get a second opinion from a Barrett's expert because it's a lifelong commitment and you need to have a doctor who's committed to this particular diagnosis and is going to do a very thorough job you know, every three years. Plus, if you are skilled and you do this all the time, I'd rather have you use a scope to remove a little portion of my esophagus than somebody who dabbles in it, obviously. (laughs) I mean, you're skilled with um, so many cases, and I I misspoke earlier and said you have a national reputation. It's an international reputation, and um, applauded for your work. So the other, I guess, the, the big issue is know when to go for endoscopy. Don't be Dr. Google. Don't trust if, if you stop and buy a meprazole and use it for a week or so, go to your doctor. What is your biggest, most important party message for listeners, Tony? So I think Joe's story is critically important for the listeners to understand that if yourself or your children, uh, the youngest person I have with Barrett's 13 years old, now 16, I have many family members. So if yourself, your children, your spouse, your brothers, your sisters have these reflux symptoms, you see them, you know, after dinner, it's complaining about heartburn, popping tums, maylock, other things. Tell them, hey, listen, this is important. You can't ignore these things. You got to go see your doctor. And if your doctor is resistant to uh, having any of, uh, you know, moving forward and having you see a gastroenterologist, take control, take your care into your own hands and go see a gastroenterologist. 
uh, about this problem. You must take control of your own health care and your own destiny and be sure that this doesn't get missed. One endoscopy is all you need in your life. And if you don't have Barrett's esophagus and you've been thoroughly checked, then you're good to go. You can treat this symptomatically, do those lifestyle modifications as Marion and I discussed, but you got to get checked. Please don't ignore the symptoms of acid reflux and don't keep on taking over-the-counter medications without talking to your doctor about your symptoms. Right, and I think we're also seeing an increased number of people who have um, weight loss surgeries where their stomach is made smaller. They're going to have reflux more often, yes? People that have weight reduction procedures and surgeries? Yes. That's another category. That's true, Marianne. We... we Mm -hmm. Very true. We've been looking at cases. Uh, we've just had a conference with this that you were on, I believe, with our bariatric surgeons, and we're seeing a lot of rapidly progressing Barrett's esophagus in patients who have had this gastric bypass surgery. Now, they're all supposed to have a baseline scope before they have it done, but they're periodically going to need to be yep. scoped to be sure they don't develop exactly. Barrett's esophagus. Listen to the words of Dr. Infantilino, my friends, and if you want to reach him for a second opinion or to see him as a patient, The number in our GI office is 215-955-8900. If you don't remember that, call Jeff now, 1-800-JEFF-NOW, N-O-W. Tony, thank you. I can't thank you enough for sharing your message and your wisdom. And um, it was a real treat to have you on the show, and I'm honored to call you my colleague and friend. Uh, Same to you, Marion. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to this on uh, their morning, and uh, I hope that we're able to reach a lot of people and save a lot of lives. Uh, Thank you once again. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Locks of Love. Losing your hair with age is a source of distress and can make a man or woman feel self-conscious or less confident. Now, think of a child with a medical condition that leads to patches of hair loss or even baldness. It can be devastating. Alopecia is found in about 2% of the world population, often part of an autoimmune condition like type 1 diabetes or celiac disease, and some women lose a good deal of hair after pregnancy. From Madonna Kaufman, Alopecia began in her early 20s and plagued her for nine years. Eventually, her hair grew back on its own. And she looks back at that time as difficult, but not nearly as distressing as watching her daughter's hair loss 13 years later. Abby was only four years old when she lost all of her hair. She recovered at age six, lost it all again at age 11, but some miracle brought it back for senior year in high school in time for the prom and graduation. But by sophomore year of college, the cycle began again, and she lost all her hair and still has for eight years. Madonna is a cardiac nurse inspired by her little girl's recovery, and she made it her mission to help her daughter and other children suffering from medical hair loss. In 1997, her work began with bins of mail and hair donations in her garage, then moved to a local hospital that donated space, and she found a manufacturer who made the highest quality hair pieces and locks of love began. With support from media and volunteers throughout the country, Locks of Love has been featured on almost every local and national talk show and publications with high profile, and support from athletes and celebrities who donate their own locks. TV anchor Ann Curry cut her hair live on the Today Show with Madonna and Abby as her guests on a show in March of 2006. 
It takes almost 12 ponytails to make one prosthesis. Notice the word is not wig. The process begins with making a silicone mold to fit the individual child's head. Then each strand of hair is implanted, up to 150,000 strands, and placed the way the hair falls. The design also includes where the child wants their hair to part. The custom-fitted vacuum-attached hairpiece allows the child to shower and swim without worry, and it can't be pulled off by a bully in the schoolyard or by wind on a roller coaster ride. Alopecia in children can come from treatment with chemotherapy, but Madonna said this is only 20% of her clients. Others are burn victims or suffered trauma like a dog bite. The child is given a free prosthesis every two years based on a new mold as their head grows up to the age of 21. Madonna wants to support children through their developmental years and give them the confidence they need and deserve so they can focus on being a kid. Locks of Love, the national nonprofit, offers free hair paces made with human hair to children in all 50 states and Canada, aiming to help every financially disadvantaged child suffering from long-term hair loss. Madonna has helped many children through their struggles, including twins and triplets. I asked what memory touched her the most in these 24 years, and she said it was a child who said, you are my other mother. I reminded her that Madonna means a virtuous, beautiful woman. We salute you, Madonna Kaufman. You're a real champion. Visit the website locksoflove.org and learn how you can donate your locks of hair or even your dollars to help with research. Thank you for listening each week. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Hear our show again. Next week, learn how to prepare for a healthy pregnancy and delivery with Dr. Mark Finnegan of Mainline Health. Ladies, listen closely. I began a program at Jefferson called Pink Plus. Come and have a gynecology exam, a mammogram, and a GI visit. Three cancer screenings in one visit. Remember, your care is more than just a mammogram. More people die of colon cancer than breast cancer when we combine men and women. Call 215-503-1631. Now find those leftover jelly beans and listen to the sounds of Sinatra. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.